scripture that Trey has asked me to read this morning is from the book of Haggai, and he's asked me all to have you stand, if you would, as we read the scripture. So stand with me, and we'll read chapter 1 of, of the book of Haggai. You can follow along if you want. It's toward the end of your Old Testament, starting in verse 1. It says, In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, The time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored by it, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain and new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message on the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Jay. Well, folks, good morning. Glad you all are here. Why don't you grab your Bible, and uh, if you didn't have a chance to turn and uh, read the book of Haggai with Jay, why don't you do that now so you can grab your own Bible. There should be Bibles scattered in the pew backs in front of you. And uh, turn to the Old Testament book of Haggai. It's, it's near the end of your whole Old Testament. You'll, if you see Zephaniah, it's right after that. If, you've, if you see uh, Zechariah or Malachi, you've gone too far. We are in Haggai chapter 1, and we'll be taking a look at the... Uh, the section that Jay just read for us, as we continue in our summer sermon series entitled No More Excuses. No More Excuses. Our sermon uh, this morning is entitled Busy with Our Own Houses. Busy with Our Own Houses. Haggai chapter 1. I trust that you're there or close to it, so let's pray. And then we'll have the uh, opportunity to uh, dive into our sermon and our text this morning. Really glad everyone's here. Let's pray together if you would. Father, we pray that you would be uh, among us now, that you would in particular reveal yourself in power as we uh, turn to spend our time uh, in subject to your word, listening to your word, receiving your word through the power of your spirit into our spirits and hearts. We pray that you would speak to us afresh and anew this morning, and that you would revive our hearts, that you would revive our souls, and that, Father, you would set in place 
priorities that may be completely backwards in our own hearts and lives. Father, may what is said of the people of old uh, be said of us that our spirits would be stirred to do what you would have us to do, to place in priority what you would have us place in priority, and to throw away and cast off wrong priorities in our hearts and in our lives. Father, we don't want to give you any more excuses. Help us in the name of Jesus and all of God's people this morning said together, amen. Well, there's a group of friends, a group of men that decided to go hunting one fall morning. And uh, as they got to their site, they decided it would be best to pair off in twos uh, to go hunting for the day. And as the day went on and the night came and the men were gathering together to see what had uh, happened and what they had accomplished, uh, one of the hunters unexpectedly uh, returned back to the group alone. And uh, from afar off, the other men could see that he was carrying something on his back. And as the man drew closer to the group, that uh, they could tell that the man had, a, had an eight-point humongous buck on his back, carrying it uh, laboriously uh, and yet proudly back to the location. Um, but there was a man missing, and so as he got back, uh, one of the other gentlemen said, Hey, where's Harry? To which the gentleman replied, oh, oh, Harry, well, he had some kind of stroke back there, and, and a couple miles back, he, he, something was wrong. And they looked at him, and they said, you left Harry lying there while you carried the deer all the way back? To which the hunter replied, well, I figured nobody was going to steal Harry. You know, this uh, simple story illustration, I think, uh, shows us the truth that it's oftentimes easy for us to look at other people's lives, and we can look at other people's circumstances, and we can look at other people's decisions, and we can often see misplaced priorities, can't we? And yet, when we turn to look inward, when we turn to evaluate our own hearts and our own lives and our own decisions, it's often more difficult to identify misplaced priorities in our own lives. See, it's so easy for us as Christians, I think, to fail to see when our priorities, when that which we value the most in our own life and our daily decisions, when there's a a subtle shift from that which is God's priorities to that which is our own priorities. And not only do we often, I think, fail to recognize when this shift in priorities happens, but what often happens in my own life is we then create excuses. We create excuses, either knowingly or unknowingly, to justify the wrong priority, the putting of our own priorities in place of God's priorities. And friends, as we turn to the book of Haggai, chapter 1. That's exactly the situation that we find God's people in this. See, they too had uh, experienced a a seemingly imperceptible shift, if you will, in their own lives as individuals and in the collective life of God's people. There was this imperceptible shift that had occurred over a number of years, over a number of months, and they too had had experienced this shift from God's priorities for them to their own priorities and pleasures. 
And what we see as we turn to Haggai chapter 1 is that this shift is unveiled. It is unmasked. It is revealed by their excuse making. In other words, we can look at their excuse and we can see the misplaced priorities in their lives. And friends, I wonder if we can relate to them. I think we probably can. I wonder if you have ever found yourself in your Christian walk and just thinking, you know, I wonder if I have my priorities a little bit upside down. I wonder if you've ever let the demands of that which is urgent overshadow your desire for that which is eternal. I wonder if you ever found yourself in a place of spiritual lethargy as the daily grind of life and events has just kind of caused you to put God and his priorities and his mission a bit on the back burner of your life. I wonder, friends, if you have ever become callous to the things that God desires most and gone after the things that you and I desire most. I wonder if you've ever begun something, some work, some discipline for the Lord, some habit, some activity, some ministry, some program, only just to let it slowly but surely drop from your life. And instead of re-engaging, you just kind of let it lay there. Friends, if you have ever been there, and I think we all have been there, haven't we? Then we find ourselves in familiar company as we turn to Haggai chapter 1. And let me ask you a question. God found his people in such a place. They had placed their priorities over God's priorities. And I wonder, do you think that he let them stay there? Do you think that he lets us stay in that place? Friends, he doesn't. And what we see in Haggai chapter 1 is God is sending a wake-up call to his lethargic and spiritually sleepy people. And friends, he wants to do so today for me and you as well through the book of Haggai chapter 1. Now, I am sure that you remember about a year ago this time that we did about a three or four week sermon series on the entire book of Haggai. And I'm sure you remember every single detail about that. But just in case you don't, just in case you need a little bit of a refresher about what's going on in the book of Haggai, we see it in Haggai chapter 1 verse 1. Let's begin our time this morning with a bit of a refresher. Haggai chapter 1 verse 1 begins And it sets the historical scene for us. What is going on? Who is this man named Haggai? What is the year? Who is he writing to? We we see it all in chapter 1, verse 1. Let's turn to the word of the Lord together. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jezodak, the high priest. So here we, we, we learn some important details, right? First of all, we learn the date. Second of all, we learn a little bit about the messenger. And third, we learn a little bit about the recipients of this message. Take a look with me in verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month. If you want to take a look at the slide behind me, just a little bit of historical perspective. The year is 520 B.C., 
520 BC. And God's people, though back in the promised land, having been returned from exile, they were living under foreign pagan rule. In fact, they were living under the Persians. And so when we see in verse 1 this mention of King Darius, he was the king of Persia at this particular time. The year is 520 BC. The people had been living in the city of Jerusalem, and it had been about 18 years since they had returned from exile. Now, after their return, they returned some 18 years ago, and they got right to work. They got right to work. In fact, they began to offer sacrifices. There was an altar to the Lord that had been almost immediately rebuilt. They began to work on the foundation. See, the temple had been utterly destroyed. And so they began work on the temple once again. So they returned and they got back to work and things were looking good. They were pursuing obedience to God and his priorities. But trouble soon followed. See, pagan harassment from the, the, the people and the nations around them and Persian pressure brought to a grinding halt the rebuilding project of the temple. God had wanted his temple rebuilt. It was of high priority. But due to harassment and pressure, um, apathy and neglect began to set in among the people of God, and weeks turned into months, and mer- months turned into, into years. And the, the temple, which God so valued, which he commanded be rebuilt, just sat there. It just sat there, neglected, unfinished, unworked upon, and in the minds of God's people, seemingly forgotten. Not only do we see the year, but notice... It's a specific day, on the first day of the sixth month. Now, we learn from Numbers 28 that this was a celebration date. It was a, it was a festival day. God's people would celebrate the new moon festival. And so what we see here is that it was a special day. It was a day of celebration. It was a day of feasting. And many of God's people would have come to the city of Jerusalem. What, what an appropriate time. For God to send his messenger to awaken his sleeping people. Now, what do we know of this Haggai? The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. We don't really know much at all about the prophet Haggai, but what we do know is his name. His name was Haggai, and in Hebrew it, it means festival or, or festival of the Lord. Now, isn't that fitting? What was going on during the time when the Lord sent Haggai? to his people. How fitting it is that God would send a man named Festival to confront the Jews at festival time. Now, who was this book written for? Of course, it was written for the larger people of God. But specifically, we see that two people here are listed. We see Zerubbabel. He was the governor of Judah. And we see Joshua. He was the high priest. In other words, God sent the message of the prophet to the political leader of his people and to the spiritual leader of his people, expecting their hearts would be softened and that they would be stirred and then that they would lead God's people in revival of the priorities of God. So, given just a bit of a refresher here, let's turn now to the rebuke that we see his people, starting in verse 2. The initial rebuke of the people, God calls out their excuse-making. See, they had wrong priorities. 
And God is going to rebuke them for it, starting in verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Now, now notice what he does. He puts the excuse of the people upon their lips. These people say, this is, this is what they were saying. This was their excuse. The time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. See, though God had commanded that it be for 16 years, the returned exiles, the people of God, were simply giving God this excuse. We know it's supposed to be done, but it's just not the right timing. Maybe next year, maybe the year after that, maybe in five years, maybe then it will be time, but now it's just not a good time. Now notice what God calls his people. Did you notice? He doesn't say, my people are saying the time has not yet come. What did, what did he say? These people say. These people. Why did he call them these people instead of my people? Let me ask you a question. Were they acting like the people of God then? No, they weren't. They weren't acting like his people. So, so God distances himself a bit from these people. So this maybe is a helpful illustration, I hope. Um, so when I get home from work uh, occasionally, uh, my wife will say something like this. She'll say, do you know what your son did today? Now let me ask you, is it going to be good? No. Because when my son or my daughter does something bad, guess whose son it is? Mine, right? But, but if I get home and she says, guess what, guess what my son did today? Or guess what our son or daughter did today? It's going to be good, right? See, this is a, a term of distancing. God says, these people, right? These people have wrong priorities. And notice, what does Haggai call God? Notice the name here. This is what Yahweh Almighty, quite literally, it's, it's the Lord of hosts, the, the, the Lord of armies. It's a military reference. This was, this was a name that God had given himself to emphasize that he is a God of war and that when his people go to war, he is with them. He is the God of all of the armies of the earth and he is the God of, of Israel's army. Now, this is significant, right? They were fearful of foreign armies, were they not? They were feel, fearful of, of, of the Persian army. They were afraid that if they put God priorities, God's priorities first and they begin to rebuild that these armies of the nations around them might come upon them. And the Lord says, no, I am the God of hosts. I am the Lord of armies. You need not fear. That is an invalid excuse. Friends, I wonder if me and you, like Israel of old, are putting off doing something that God has clearly commanded us to do in his word. Or maybe it's something we feel called through his spirit that that we are supposed to do, and we are giving this exact same excuse. I wonder how often we tell the Lord, Lord, I know that your word says that I am to do this. I know your word says that I'm not to do that. I, I feel, Lord, I know there is this prompting in my spirit, and it is the Holy Spirit, and, and you are calling me to do this. But the time has not yet come. Lord, it's just not time yet. Friends, what priorities of God are you and I putting on the back burner under the guise that it's just not the right time yet? Maybe we know that we have hurt someone. 
And we need to go to them and approach them in, in humble repentance, asking them for forgiveness. And you're saying, oh, it's just not time yet. Maybe you know you need help with the addiction or the issue or the sin problem that you're, have, you're having and you're just keeping it to yourself. I know that I should seek help, but it's just not time. Maybe it's getting back into the habit of attending Sunday school or men's, or women's, men's and women's Bible studies or being engaged in the life of the church and you're saying, God, I know, but it's just not time yet. As with God's people back then, God's people, we still today, use this excuse to cover up wrong priorities in our, in our life. So notice what God does in verse 3. He uncovers, he unmasks their improper priorities and their excuse. Verse 3, then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. What would God's response be? What is God's response when we say, it's just not time, it's just not time yet, God? Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, verse 4. <clears throat> Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Friends, let me ask you a simple question here. What had the people of God been doing those 16 years that they had been putting off building God's house? What had they been up to? They had been working on building whose house? God's house? Their own houses. They had been not only building their own houses, but notice the type of houses that they had been building. Paneled houses. See, in the Old Testament, this often refers to luxurious homes, to high-scale, high-end homes. So here's the picture of what was going on. God's people, let's say, would walk by Jerusalem and they would notice that, that the temple, its walls were scorched with fire. And then they would keep on walking and, and then they would notice that its walls were overturned. And then they would keep walking past God's temple and they would look and see that the roof had been caved in. And they walked on by. And then they went to go purchase expensive building materials. And then they walked by again with those expensive building materials and they built their own luxurious houses. See, now we see the real reason for not rebuilding the temple. They were too busy with their own priorities. They were too busy with their own pleasures. They were too busy doing their own pursuits to care about God's priorities. And so in response to their excuse that it simply wasn't time to rebuild the temple, God fires back at them. He says, oh, oh, it's, it's not time to rebuild my house, you say? Well, 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 is it time to rebuild your house? Because that's exactly what you've been doing, is mine lays in ruin. But it gets, it gets worse here. Because we have to ask the question, how did these refugees gain the money? Where did they get the wealth to be able to build such nice homes. See, they had been in exile for 70 years, and they had returned back as refugees. Let me ask you, uh, this is a simple question. Do refugees generally have a lot of money? No, they don't. And neither did these people. Where did they get the money to go buy and build such nice homes? Well, we see a clue in Ezra chapter 3. 
Because in Ezra chapter 3, we are told that King Cyrus of Persia had given the Jews not only permission to go back to Jerusalem, but he had supplied them with money and building materials to build the temple. So they came home with money and materials to build the temple. And what did they use it for? The temple? No. They used it to rebuild their own houses rather than God's. So let's pause now and ask some tough questions, I think, of ourselves. Brothers and sisters, is this not a picture at times of the American church? I wonder if we can be guilty of doing just what Israel, God's people, were doing in Haggai's day. See, we're not charged with with building God's house, his temple, so to speak, but we are charged, in a sense, with building up the kingdom of God, right? And while we're not given the task of of building a, a building, right, we see that the local church is God's building and that the Spirit dwells there. See, God has revealed his priorities in his word, to them and to us in our day. He, for instance, he tells us, Matthew 28, 18, make disciples of all the nations. He tells us in 1 Corinthians to be ambassadors for Christ. And on and on we go. We, 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 we see throughout the New Testament, what is it that God desires for his church? What is it that he wants us to be about? And friends, I wonder, I wonder if I am too busy building my own little kingdom to care about building God's kingdom. If you see the quote behind me, Alden, I think, gets it right when he says this. He says, many Christians are like those ancient Hebrews, somehow convincing themselves that economy in constructing church buildings or financing God's work is all important, while at the same time sparing no expense and acquiring their own personal luxuries. Friends, is this true of the American church? Is this true of Grace Bible Church? Is this true of me and of you? Are we spending money, for example, to beautify our homes or to keep current our wardrobes or to have the newest and the best technologies to make sure we have the best comforts and the greatest vacations, seemingly sparing no expense for our own personal comforts and leisure All the while, the kingdom of God and the local church, we are chintzy. We value economy when it comes to the church building or financing God's work, both in the local church and beyond. Do we drive around nice cars and justify not supporting missionaries? Can we be doing what they have been doing? Can we be busy in our own lives in our own little bubbles, kind of just living, living the dream, all the while forgetting that God has a dream for this little town, for this nation, and for this world? Are we so busy with our schedules, with our own priorities, that it's hard to be involved in the life of the local church, that it's, it's hard for us to, to see that family who's, whose husband, he's a grieving husband, and his wife just passed away, and it's hard for us to find time to visit them Could, because we're just busy. You know, we have our own things to do. I wonder, are we so occupied with sports and events and just living our own lives that we forget 
that God has us here for a reason, that he has saved us through the gospel of Jesus Christ to make an impact in our community and in our world. Warren Wearsby says this. He says, we say, speaking of Christianity, Christians, we say, it's not time for evangelistic crusades, or it's not time for the Spirit to bring, to bring revival, or it's not time to expand that ministry. And then he says, too often we make excuses when we ought to be making confessions and obeying the Lord. He says, an affluent generation of Christians that is wasting God's generous gifts on trivia and toys will have much to answer for when the Lord returns. I'll be honest, that quote gets me every time. Because I have to look and ask my own, my own life, and I have to say, am I using what God has so richly blessed me with materially and, and, and financially and with my time and with my gifts? And, and are, we, are we just spending that on trivia and toys when there is a kingdom to be built and there are souls to save? Well, we move from the refresher to the rebuke to the, to the reminder that God gave his people in verses 11, 5 through 11. Notice in verse 5, he gives them a, re- a reminder here. He gives them a, a reminder. He says, I, you've entered into a covenant with me, O Israel, and I've told you what would happen when you disobey that covenant. That's exactly what's happening to you now. Verse 5, now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Did you notice how often he says this in chapter 1? He wants his people to think about their priorities. Give careful thought to your ways. Verse 7. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house. Why? So that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin. Now notice this. While each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, Because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its drops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains and the grain, the wine, excuse me, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces on people and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. So the Lord is telling his people, you want to know why you're under uh, the the curse that you're experiencing, these curse-like symptoms. You wonder why you're experiencing these consequences. Go back and read the law. Remember, this is what I said would happen. And sandwiched in between um, this explanation is God's clear command. This is my priority for you as a people. Build my house. Go and do it, right? There's a word play. Notice verse 11. Look at it in your text. God says, I called for a drought. I called for a drought on you, on your fields and the mountains and the wine and the oil and the people and the livestock. I have, I have, I have given you a drought. In Hebrew, the word is korab. I have said a korab on you. While in verses 4 through 9, uh, ironically, he describes the temple as a ruin, as a koreb. In other words, it's a play on words. He wants the people to think, oh, 
the condition of my field mirrors the condition of the temple, right? That's why my fields are like that, because the temple is like that. And notice, here's the irony of this section. The people had put their own priorities in front of God's, right? They thought that that would lead to prosperity. They thought that they would get what they wanted. Let me ask you, did it work out that way? It did not work out that way. Had it gained them what they wanted? No, it had not. Their harvests were divinely deprived. Their drinks were decreed to be deficient. Their clothing was instructed to be inadequate. Their harvests harvests were, were divinely deprived. They, their clothing was instructed to be inadequate. Their paychecks were pulled from their purses by providence. God said, you are not going to get what you want by putting your priorities in front of mine. And friends, the same is true of us as believers in Christ. When we put our own priorities in front of God's priorities, when we pursue our joys, our pleasures, our own little kingdoms, we're not ever going to experience the pleasure and the satisfaction and the significance that God wants because that only comes when we are in line with what God has prioritized. Friends, I wonder if these verses could describe your life. And if it does, then it may be because you have flip-flopped your priorities. Notice, why did God want them to build the temple? We see it in verse 8. God wanted them to, be, to, to, to build the temple, number one, that I may take pleasure in it, and number two, that I might be honored. So friends, let me ask you, what happens when God's people put his, pri- his priorities first? He's pleased and he's honored. On the contrary, what happens when you and I don't put his priorities first? Is he pleased? No. Is he honored? No. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Because we see as we close our time here, the response of the people. In verses 12 through 15, God had rebuked them. He had given them a reminder of their covenant unfaithfulness. He had, told, he had given them clear directions. Put my priorities first. And they responded, starting in verse 12. I, I remember one night, it's probably been several months ago now, but uh, I remember it as clear as day. It was one of those nights, maybe you've had them, where you go to bed and you're sleeping wonderfully. You're just in deep sleep and you're enjoying it. And all of a sudden, something arouses you. It just stirs you. There's a loud noise in the house, and you're just awakened from your sleep. Well, that happened to me. I was deep in sleep, and I was jerked from my fantasy world into this harsh reality of consciousness because there was this noise, this this shrieking noise that was echoing throughout the house. And so I I was, "What, what is that? And so I I went on this mad dash to find this ungodly noise going off in the middle of the night. And I discovered that it was one of those toys that my kids had that that makes noise. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. There are toys that aren't loud and annoying. And then there are toys that are loud and annoying. Well, it was one of those that was going off. And it was going off for no good reason. You know, it's one of those that like you have to hit it or touch a button for it to do something. Well, nobody hit it, and nobody had touched it, but it had decided to go off in the middle of the night. And so I find the thing, and I turn it off, uh, and then, just because I was probably angry, I stomp into the living room, and I open the door uh, to the garage, and I throw it in the garage, because I don't want it to make any more noise ever 
again. Friends, I think this is a pretty good picture of what was happening here in Haggai chapter 1, verse 12. See, God's people, they were in a spiritual slumber. They were lethargic, right? Spiritually speaking. And they heard this voice. They heard this sound. It was the shrieking prophetic voice of Haggai. And they had been awakened to their reality, that their priorities were wrong. And so they respond. Let's read about it in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jezodak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord, notice the language, stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jezodak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. So friends, what had happened? There was a spiritual awakening that had happened, right? God's people were awakened to the fact that their priorities were all wrong, that they had things backwards, that they cared more about their own pleasures, about their own pursuits, about their own busy lives, and they had been neglecting God's priorities and his kingdom, and they came to this realization, and they woke up, and their spirits within them were stirred. Friends, that's my prayer for myself, and that's my prayer for this church. And that's my prayer for this county and for this state and for this country and for this world. That the church of Christ would be stirred. That we too would humbly confess, God, we often have wrong priorities. We care about the wrong things. Oh God, we want to pursue you. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says this of this awakening. They had a new sense, excuse me, they had a new awe and reverence for God as they pondered the significance of their past disobedience and self-centeredness and their new sense of obedience to divine priorities. Friends, I pray that that would happen in your heart. Pray that that would happen in my heart. Brothers and sisters, may the same be said of us in this place and in our day. My prayer for us is that we would wake up from our spiritual stupor, our selfish pursuits, our own agendas, our own goals, our own comforts, our own kingdoms, and be stirred to pursue God's priority for his kingdom and for his church. Friends, just think about it with me. What could God do here in this local church? What could God do in the local churches throughout this land if we stopped being so concerned about our schedules and our comforts and our vacations and our luxuries and our toys and our trivia and our pursuits, and we really began to think, man, people need Jesus, so maybe we should tell them about him. Or if we really cared about discipleship and being serious about being followers of Christ, or if we really began recognizing how desperately we need other Christians to, 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 to form fellowship relationships with one another, if we really began to care about missions both here and abroad, what might happen if we began to humble ourselves and seek God's face and we join together in prayer for our families and for this church and for this country? What, what could happen? 
The same thing that would happen in Haggai chapter 1. People's spirits might be stirred. So, friends, may God grant us awakening. May he stir our spirits afresh. As he did in the days of Haggai, may he do in our day and in our time and in our hearts. We're going to pray. We're going to ask our worship team to come sing. uh, Lead us in a song of response. So would you pray with me as they come? Father, I confess that I so often have misplaced priorities and that the pursuits and joys in my own heart are often not yours. Lord, humble us and help our hearts to be soft towards you. May we do what your word says, which is to pause and to consider our ways, to consider what is most valuable to us, to consider what we really care about. And Father, if those things are not in line with what you really care about, then break us for your name's sake, we pray, and cause us to have an awakening. We ask it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. You can stand and sing.